have long been active in trying to exploit all the digital platforms that we have. Let me explain some of the shows that I'm responsible for. Um, GBH produces Nova, Frontline, American Experience, those are the three big nonfiction series. Additionally, we produce Masterpiece Theater, Mystery, and Antiques Roadshow. So that's the sort of the, the, the stable that I run. Each of those shows has its own digital platforms and has exploited digital rights in lots of different ways. But what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to try to stick to the time. I was a commercial um, television producer, so I know that time is important and deadlines are important. But I spent too much time at PBS, so my inclination is to make a 14-part series. <laughs> Rest assured, I will not. Um, we have a couple of projects I wanted to uh, introduce you to because they're new projects and we're using digital rights in a way we haven't ever before. And they're represented programs from different um, genres. We Shall Remain is a big five-part historical series on the history of Native Americans that has been produced by American Spirits. The broadcast date is around 2009. Um, what we wanted to do is to not tell the whole swath of Native American history, but to select five good stories that are illustrative of the struggle of Native Americans to survive. Um, we also wanted to take advantage of the new media platforms to do a couple of things. One is to increase the public participation in public broadcasting, and the second was to help bridge the digital divide. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we want to engage young Native Americans in a way that never been able to before. And so we came up with this thing called the Citizen Storyteller. Well, you can see this is where we are on that first one. Oh, sorry, let me go back. Um, it's a Citizen Storyteller project. Um, and what we set out as our goal is to recruit 200 young Native Americans and provide them with new cell phone technology, new cell phones that could not only record great video, but also get an edit on it. And we would train them in the technology. We would train them in narrative storytelling. If they chose to do a non-narrative, that's fine. Uh, but they, we, offer, we will offer them uh, editorial help uh, uh, through these training programs. Our partner in this is the Heard Museum in Phoenix. And what we will do, we hope we will get 200 really good little films, they'll be short films, uh, probably under three minutes. We're going to post them on the web for the show name. We're going to have a little online film festival. The Heard Museum is going to make a selection of the best of to show what they're making American film festival. And using this new cell phone technology, we'll, we'll be able to transmit the, the um, films from cell phone to cell phone. So um, it's a very, very exciting project. We um, had a little um, pilot that we ran for 10 um, students recently, two weeks ago. So I really don't have anything to show you. But what I did want to show you, for those of you who haven't seen it, is the quality of the video. What you're going to see is just basically one stupid little shot, which is a pan down on a cactus. But you'll see how beautiful it is. And over the weekend, I was in Dallas at uh, a PBS convention, and I got my hands on one of those cell phones because the Nokia, cost $750 or $800, had a beautiful little screen, and I made my own little video on that hotel room, um, which I did not bring to show you because it would be too 
But um, let me show you the following because it's really great. This woman is very interesting. She lives in Kingsville River Drive. She did not volunteer for this project. What we did is we went out to the reservation. See, here it is. I don't know if that's showing up, but on my screen it's just bad. We went out to the reservation to recruit her. And she had never operated a video camera, never operated a cell phone you know, done anything with cell phone, didn't have a cell phone, and we brought her into the workshop, and she's turned out to be one of the star students, which is great, because it's, it's exposing to, her, to a whole new digital environment. Um, our other partners in this project are the Smithsonian, and um, I mentioned the Heard Museum. <coughs> we have all the humanities councils from a number of different states, and of course, the uh, network of nearly 300 public television stations that we will be able to draw on. So um, this is a great little project that we've got going. Um, I think we've finally finished raising the money for it, so we'll be able to do, I hope, come close to the goal of having 200 little videos, so stay tuned. Um, the next project comes from NOVA, which is our ongoing science series called Car of the Future. Um, it's a one-hour program answering one question, is that how can today's drivers transition to a new breed of vehicles that's less dependent on um, oil and produces few, fewer greenhouse gases? So I wanted to just show you a little clip of the show, and you'll see, you'll get a better sense of what's in it. And then I'll, talk, I'll tell you about what's different about this NOVA show from all of, all of the other NOVA shows. So I don't know if this starts automatically. I probably have to click. Try to imagine 800 million cars. If you put them bumper to bumper, they'd circle the Earth 125 times. That's how many cars are on the road today. They come in all shapes and colors, but have one thing in common. Our transportation system is almost entirely uh, fueled by petroleum, more than 95%. A quarter of all the petroleum history of the world consumed in the last 10 years. Try to imagine 800 million cars if you put them bumper to bumper, they'd circle the Earth 125 times. That's how many cars are on the road today. They come in all shapes and colors, but have one thing in common. Our transportation system is almost entirely uh, fueled by petroleum, more than 95%. A quarter of all the petroleum ever consumed in the history of the world was consumed in the last 10 years. So we are consuming at an accelerating rate. What is scary is that projections suggest that by 2050, there'll be two billion vehicles. Two and a half times as many as there are today. There's an energy shortage looming somewhere in our future. And if we do nothing, it could be a real crisis. Can I change the station? Why? No, you can't. This is important stuff. It's scaring me. I don't like it anymore. Oh, come on. Don't be such a sissy. 
Two brothers have embarked on a quest to investigate this transportation dilemma. Where are we? I don't know. We're not in Kansas anymore. I can tell you that. <laughs> they want to find out what's being done right now that will keep our cars moving in the future. Stand back. They're putting new technology to the test. They're experimenting with advanced alternative fuels. And they're getting behind the wheels of vehicles that, who knows, may become the car of the future. Join them on their journey of discovery, right now on Nova. <laughs> okay, you recognize those guys. Um, so it's a very amusing look at um, what was a very serious problem with the click and clack. Now, what's unusual about this project is that we have a web component which we call open production which went up well in advance of the broadcast. And the producer, Joe Siemens, uh, put a draft script uh, treatment up for people to take a look at. Also put up a list of um, uh, potential invite uh, interviewees and encouraged people to send in their ideas, criti critique the script, add some questions that they would ask the interviewees, suggest names of other people that he might incorporate it. And so we brought them into the process of production. And um, he has taken some of these to heart as he's gone off to shoot the film. So as you can see, you can, there's a draft script, Car of the Future, you know, about the producers, expert participants, so you can join in this discussion. And since the launch of this website, we've had over 900 emails um, of people submitting their questions and ideas. And the discussion board has attracted more than 300 posts and over 10,000 views on topics such as micro-compact cars, electric vehicles, et cetera. Roughly 30% of these emails have come from educators. And I should um, put, it on, put you on pause right now because NOVA is one of the most used, NOVA's website is one of the most used educational sites for science teachers throughout the country. So it's critically important that we um, um, reach this group of people. Um, we also, got, little did we know, um, input from people who have their own versions of the car of the future. These are, these are guys who have, uh, men and women who have built their own cars, who have fiddled, who have tinkered, or who are recommending certain cars. So you can click on any one of these and you can see um, their own personal view of their, their car of the future. So it's good user-generated content. Um, the material that we're providing for car of the future will be, uh, I've got to go back, um, the scenics and animation will be available for open content. The interviews will be available for screening and streaming online, both the video and you will be able to access the transcripts. They will not be made available for open content. And I should emphasize that we at GBH feel very strongly that we have a bond between our interviewees and experts whom we solicit, particularly in areas where we do investigative reporting like Frontline. And it's very difficult to persuade the interviewees to appear on our show and also give us carte blanche for allowing their interviews to be mixed and mashed. So that is our position. The next um, project is Teacher's Domain, which I'm sort of coincidentally involved in. But Teacher's Domain actually um, harkens to something Rick was talking about this morning about segmenting of archival material. And what we have with Teachers Domain is a library, a digital library of educational resources for K through 12, which is 
taken from all of the primetime shows that we produce. So more than 100,000 teachers use this resource. Um, we um, have 1,000 what we call clips or resources uh, on the, um, in the library right now. Um, many of them you can download and remix, but not all of them. Uh, we did get a grant from the Hewlett Foundation to take a look at some of the resources with the, with the goal of trying to clear as much as possible for open content. We often can't do that because, as Sue Kantrowitz mentioned this morning, that it's um, very difficult with our third-party rights holders. I just got a three-minute countdown here, so I have to speed it up, I guess. Um, in teacher's domain, what we do have is four different levels of usage, which um, we can, I can talk about that if you're interested in getting more detail about this. Um, we um, are very excited about the potential for teacher's domain because previously, PBS had not been, our relationship with PBS had been somewhat strained. Under the new regime of PBS, we found that we are in sync with them, so we expect Teachers Domain to become the kind of national network for public television offered throughout the country. And the statistics are really incredible, but um, I won't sort of go through the whole list of things. You can see that there's, there's a whole thing on Judah Folkman and his theory about blood and the contribution to the growth of cancer, right? This is a project that is absolutely brand new. It hasn't even started, and we don't have the funding yet. We should hear next week whether we have the full funding. It's called Adoption Families. It is a online broadcast that starts online and finishes up on television. So it's a complete reversal of the conventional way of thinking. We got to this by accident because we had initially conceived of this as a broadcast, and we went we designed a web project that uh, we thought was going to help us raise money for production. It didn't. We learned some things from it, but one of the ideas that came out of it was to just go online and do it as a web project. And we are selecting three families, and we'll give them video cameras, and they will record every week, they will record their experiences that week in the adoption process. Each of them is in a different stage in the adoption process. We will also encourage people from around the country who have gone through adoption to add their comments or helpful hints. For example, if one of the families is going to be visited by a social worker, one of these families may want to share what happened to them when, before the social worker came and offer them tips for a successful visit or things to watch out for. Um, we also have a whole website that uh, when we started the funding website, it generated all of these what we call faces of adoption. And families spent, sent in pictures and story, pictures of their own adopted children and stories about them, which was very heartfelt and moving. So we're going to keep that component of the website up and running. We will assign producers um, to each of the three families, take the material that has already been on the web, shoot some additional material, and put it on for a 90-minute broadcast sometime in 2008. After the broadcast, we will continue to follow the progress of each of these three families by tracking them for as long as we can uh, support the, the endeavor. You know, if we have enough money to follow them for a year, it would be great, and keep the website open and available to everyone. So questions later on, but that's what WGBH is up to.
So I'm uh, Tom Lucas, and I'm an independent producer, and I'm going to talk um, about another kind of information that'll kind of take us in a different direction, and that's uh, scientific data, and uh, more difficult to access, but potentially impactful uh, to the user. Uh, so as a, a producer of films about science, over the years I've seen that numerical simulations, as an example, uh, are becoming more and more a part of the science toolkit alongside theory and observation. So I got a glimmer of this <coughs> in the 80s when we did a film about tornadoes for NOVA, and there was a thunderstorm simulation in it, run, uh, performed on a Cray supercomputer. And uh, it was crude, <coughs> but still produced realistic storm features. So it was kind of a breakthrough. So things have gotten a lot more sophisticated since then, and uh, the clip up here gives you a little bit of a sense of a, a contemporary storm simulation, and it was um, <laughs> developed for another, we, we developed for another NOVA program called Hunt for the Super Twister, uh, and um, uh, Margaret was in on one of the screenings, and I hope she remembers it fondly. So this is just a, a one-minute clip. Inside storms, dynamics means how the individual blobs of air are all interacting with each other to produce the flow that becomes either the strong winds or even the tornado or even the, the things that produce hail. Based on years of weather research, Lou produces an amazingly detailed computer simulation designed with scientists at the University of Illinois. It reveals a familiar pattern. A thunderstorm explodes into the atmosphere, growing more intense every minute. The clouds begin to spin and roil high in the sky. They descend closer to the ground, still swirling rapidly. Suddenly, the rotation narrows and intensifies and touches down to Earth. The question on everyone's mind is, what triggers that final step? What makes the tornado form? Good. Okay. So later on, we go inside that simulation and uh, uh, see where all the winds are going and how it's all structured. <coughs> and of course, the real thing is always much better. Uh, but with the simulation, we can go inside. So in the last uh, eight years or so, I've been working with uh, uh, a place called the uh, Advanced Visualization Lab at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois, led by Donna Cox. <coughs> and we've been visualizing these simulations, uh, not just as illustrations, but actually as part of the story. Uh, so the, the models <coughs> that, that we're working with uh, are uh, numerical models, they incorporate equations, in this case describing fluid dynamics, uh, fluid motions, cloud physics, wind interactions, and the uh, initial conditions are put in, the virtual storm does the whole thing by itself. So more and more these codes and the, the, the data storage, the computing cycles are held in a kind of virtual realm. Uh, and institutions are all kind of connected uh, into it. And so people from far-flung locations can actually get in and collaborate on visualizing and analyzing the data. So that's what happened in this case. Uh, there was a 
whole lot of back and forth between scientists in various places trying to answer that question, what's, what's in that storm that's going to cause that tornado? And that's kind of what the show became about as well. So we did this again with a NSF-sponsored project uh, that included something different, which was a full-dome planetarium show. And that show is called Black Holes, The Other Side of Infinity. Uh, and it was released last year, and uh, it's completely different. It gets projected onto a 60-foot screen, and uh, it's a, inside of a dome, and it's completely immersive. You see all your peripheral vision is taken up. And uh, <coughs> so this next clip is, um, is a simulation of the birth of a star in the early universe. And uh, it was a really long, intensive collaboration with scientists at the uh, University of California at San Diego. And um <coughs> it actually came out of a monstrously huge simulation of the, uh, the early universe, like a hundreds of millions of light years across, a huge area. And this was a little speck that they pulled out and uh, computed it at high resolution. So let's see. Let's see if this, oh, what? If I just put my hand over it, it seems to, okay. Okay, well, let's try. Scientists have recreated these early times with supercomputer simulations. They can trace the long, steady process that formed galaxies. From the start, gravity reigns in the cosmos. It draws together the primordial gases. of years later. Okay, good. All right. So um, this material, along with a bunch of other simulations was, and, and visualizations, was also in a Nova show called Monster of the Milky Way, which was also funded by NSF and it was on last year. But the, the Dome show was a real revelation. Uh, so in its first year, it's been bouncing into about 20 theaters uh, around the world and with an audience of about five to 600,000. But the, the great thing is that the audiences are sitting right there, and they're not out there somewhere. <coughs> and they seem to experience the content very intensely. Uh, and they're in a science museum context, so they're kind of there to learn something in the beginning. Uh, and these theaters are being built around the world at a pretty good clip, so it's a really interesting kind of a market. Uh, so here's another clip, and this is, um, based on um, Andrew Hamilton at the University of Colorado and his attempt to 
simulate uh, with Einstein's equations what a black hole is actually like. And it got much better in the Nova show. Uh, but this is still good. Okay, so let's see. The black hole pulls the gas in, then spews much of it back out. Now things get really strange. What you are seeing is not the stuff of Hollywood special effects. It represents the first time scientists have visualized the journey into a black hole. Their guide is Einstein and what his equations tell them. Space here is so warped, the black hole acts like a giant lens, twisting the light that scatters across it. At last, we cross the event horizon, the point of no return. But don't expect the inside of the black hole to be dark. Swirling within is a maelstrom of energy and matter. Hidden in the chaos is a single point where the black hole's mass is packed, known as the singularity. Anyway. So, you know, the screen is as big as this room. So that's the amazing thing about it. We can, we can put these digital images on screens that big and really blow people away. And we can even, like, make them sick. We turn the, turn the image too much. Uh, but the accessibility of the data um, means we can also think about interacting with audiences in new ways. So as an example, we're proposing another dome show uh, dealing with climate change, and it's also going to the NSF, but the partners are really interested in just going ahead with it anyway. So I think it's just going to happen. There's also a TV project. But it's kind of clear as we look into that that the, these times call for strong global perspectives, and these dome shows, like TV shows, can really do that. Uh, but how do you make the global perspective relevant to uh, the local perspective? So, let's see. We gotta, okay, so, so this image here is a map of uh, high temperatures in uh, June uh, in 2000, the period leading up to 2000. And so you can see kind of some dark spots over there. That's kind of Death Valley-like conditions. And 120 degrees uh, is, is about the average high. Uh, so this is a simulation of a, uh, the year two, 2100, same time, June, the high temperatures, uh, performed uh, by a, um, a UK global climate model and interpolated down. So you can see the dark red is much, uh, much bigger. Uh, <coughs> So, you know, uh, they say, don't mess with Texas. Uh, don't go to Texas. <laughs> I think. So this is, this is where Death Valley is now. So our idea is to make, you know, data like this much more accessible on, on a, in a web project so you can really kind of um, look at the model results, see how things are going to work in your own neighborhoods uh, you know, based on, you know, different scenarios. And 
we don't think that's on the web right now. It's kind of surprising. Uh, but uh, there's another thing that we're interested in, which is making it even more local. And there's, uh, uh, so there's one effort, which is in North Carolina, that's happening now, where they're taking um, climatic data and they're putting them into portable domes, inflatable domes, which are the big things scaled down with smaller audiences. And they're starting to show climatic and topographical data to people, communities. And they're focusing on flooding and storm surge right now. Uh, but we're going to seek, we're going to try to feed into that and, uh, and even make it interactive as well. So just imagine, you know, if the simulations can be brought down, and they are, to a smaller scale. Imagine being able to test your own scenarios uh, to simulate global climate's impact locally. Uh, that could be very impactful as well as very educational. So, um, uh, and there's one effort that's doing that to, uh, to an extent, and that's the Hadley Center in Britain is making PC-sized climate models uh, available regionally around the world. So for local governments and scientists to plan and to project out what's going to happen right there. Uh, we're almost out of time, so I'll let Curtis have the rest. Myself, I'm Curtis Wong, and uh, changing tape. Can we wait for a second? Okay, we're good. Um, I'm Curtis Wong. I work for Microsoft Research, uh, a little group called Next Media Research. Um, I was involved in uh, new media, if you want to call it that, for about 10 years before I got to Microsoft, and I thought it was time to uh, think about what was coming next, so I named the group Next Media. So that's the, that's the group. We're a small group of about five people, and most of what we do is primarily developing technologies and products and services that are about four to six years down the line. So. The question of all of the things I've been doing is like, uh, I realize it's all related to the meaning of more. Because with traditional video, the way you get more is essentially for video to be longer. And what kinds of things can we do to enable deeper understanding without necessarily having it be longer? And so my roots go back. I worked at the Voyager company almost 20 years ago. And what we were doing back then was we were producing feature films. And more to us meant letterboxing, showing more of the picture, providing director's commentaries, all those things that you are pretty familiar with in terms of DVDs nowadays. But the powerful thing that I learned in terms of working with a lot of directors was the importance of story and narrative in terms of engaging an audience. And after I left Voyager, I went to another company called Continuum, when we started doing more of the CD-ROMs that I st also started doing at Voyager. And the first one I did was something called A Passion for Art. And I think the problem that I felt with a lot of CD-ROMs at that time is that they didn't really do very much in terms of, it was all about the quantitative nature of the information. And I felt narrative was really, really important. And so one of the things we did with this CD-ROM is we had a whole series of narratives from the welcome to a tour about Dr. Barnes, if you knew who he was, if you didn't, uh, a gallery tour, a thematic tour, and a story of the creation of a singular work of art. And that's sort of the narrative. But underneath the narrative, there's this important missing layer that traditionally you don't get with video, is, which is a contextual exploration layer. And there, in this particular title, we had a gallery where you could sort of get a sense of where the, where the paintings are, what rooms they are, how big they are, all that sort of spatial information that you typically don't get in books or video. And then we also had time, temporal-based uh, context 
in terms of showing the works of art in relation to other events of the time. And at the bottom layer is what we're calling the archive, where we have access to documents and other things, original source information. So in a sense, the narrative provides a way to engage you on a particular subject. The context allows you to explore in ways that are of interest to you and develop mental models of the information. And then having the source information at the, bo at the bottom allows you to way to develop sort of and validate some of your understanding from that mental model. I'd show a passion for art, but then we'd shoot another hour, so. Um, that particular architecture, we continued with another project uh, called Leonardo da Vinci, uh, which is about the Codex Lester. If you know, it's one of Leonardo's notebooks. And I'll organic metaphors for his ideas. So we use the idea of a tree. As a tree represents Leonardo in his life. So we use from the Renaissance. So these are narratives of the background of the Renaissance. The trunk represents his life, his thinking, and discussion of nature. And this is about the Codex Lester. If you know about the Lester, the Lester is about the earth, the water, and the heavens. So the tree branches into three different branches. And these are contextual narratives and explorations about those particular topics. And at the foot of the tree is a gallery of all of Leonardo's work. All of the paintings and the drawings, as well as the Codex Lester itself. I'll tell you just a tiny bit of what I mean by In 1690, by the great power of gold, a painter named Giuseppe Ghezzi acquired a remarkable manuscript. It concerned the weight and motion of the waters and was composed, written, and illustrated by the illustrious painter and geometrician Leonardo da Vinci. An inscription identified its former owner as Guglielmo della Porta, a sculptor who had died in 1577. So that's an example of a narrative. You can sort of see what's ahead if you wanted to jump ahead. You can always go anywhere directly within the title to an exhibit or a gallery, but let's go to the Codex Lester itself. Anybody here seen the Codex Lester? It was at American Museum of Natural History about eight years ago, just a few. And so these are all the themes that are in the, Lex in the Lester. If you click on astronomy, it tells you which pages have astronomy. You can go to the individual pages itself. There's insight from... Leonardo always insisted on... ...who's an expert uh, on Leonardo at Oxford. Uh, but you can look at the page itself. Now, you know he wrote backwards, of course, and we can change that so that you can read Italian if you know Italian. But one of my ideas was to come up with a translator, which we call the Codoscope, so you can see the writing in context. And you can actually also turn this into uh, uh, Italian, so you can try and read his writing, such as here you can see Sole and Luna. But when you, when you do look at this, you realize that he writes in first person because he's having these little intellectual arguments with himself. But this is an example of sort of interaction and contextual exploration that you just can't get in linear form or in a book as well. <coughs> and those are always the kinds of things that when we did these kinds of interactive titles, 
that what are we doing that can't be done better in any other medium? So um, by 1997-98, I had gone to Intel and I was the director of content there. And um, one of the things they were going to do was the first uh, enhanced digital television broadcast in the U.S. And what they were planning to do was they were going to send the test pattern of the Indian from one end of the country to the other. And I said, you know, that's got to be the most boring thing that you can think of. And we should do something more interesting. They said, well, what do you suggest? I said, well, you know, I'd, I know Ken Burns is working on Frank Lloyd Wright. I've worked with Ken before on another project. Let me call him up and let's see if we can do something interesting. And what we did was um, something called the Poetry of Structure, which is um, about three of uh, the building seats in uh, Unity Temple, Falling Water, and the Guggenheim. And in this, we have sort of that same architectural narrative in terms of there's an introduction, uh, these narrative stories, and then there's contextual explorations where you can actually go inside those buildings. Um, um, and unfortunately, I don't think we have enough time to do that either, but we'll keep going. And so um, another experiment we did was with American Experience in 1998, thinking about um, how you can generate related information to a television broadcast. And one of the things we tried to do was use the closed caption information and have that drive links to source information underneath. And that might be an encyclopedia, might be an atlas, and might be other things. So this was an experiment in that, and actually it, we learned quite a bit from doing this. Um, I think I'll skip forward <coughs> too. So through the process of these experiments, We've sort, I've sort of come down to what I'm calling sort of the layered contextual narrative, which is bringing, finding out a way to build up um, links between the narrative layer and this contextual layer, which is exploration and simulation, so that you can explore a narrative, find something interesting, go down deep into the exploration area through association, find other things you're interested in, come back up into another part of the narrative related to that, or else go down deeper into source information. And so the first application we were thinking about doing this with uh, was uh, thinking about um, sort of interactive television. And this was the year 2000, seven years ago. And at that time, most of interactive television was pretty much constrained to set-top box deployments, which were fairly small in number. And we really never knew if there was a big enough audience in terms of the content, whether things were working or not. And so we felt that broadband internet was really sort of the future of television. And so in collaboration <laughs> with Howard Cutler, and Mike Sullivan is part of the Frontline team, uh, we picked Commanding Heights, which, uh, because we wanted it to be broadband, we wanted a program that would people could get at that time, and pretty much only higher ed and business had broadband around the year 2000. And so Commanding Heights is a six-hour television series that we streamed entirely online in terms of three nights. And the program was created from its conception as something that would live on television as well as live on the web. And that the television essentially would be the spine of the experience, but that would be, be just the beginning in terms of its links to deeper information. And the other constraints about traditional linear television are you're, you're constrained by not only the duration of, your, of the film, but also maintaining continuity of the narrative arcs that you're trying to create. And, what, and through the process of shooting Commanding Heights, they knew a lot of this was also going to live on the web, so we could tell stories online in a way that couldn't necessarily be done within the constraints of even a six-hour television series. So um, this is um, Commanding Heights. I'll see if I can pull it up here. So this is uh, it, it. Commanding Heights aired in 2002, and uh, 
it, it aired briefly, uh, I think, during uh, Pledge Drive at the end of the year, and it hasn't been on since. So this is the site. So the number of components are Storyline, which is essentially the um, entire television program online. There's an interactive time atlas, individual country reports, and then information about people and ideas that are brought up in the show. So you can look at the second night, and there are different chapters, and call up, say, this chapter with uh, Jeffrey Sachs. So you can also go anywhere directly. But an economic system needs years. System ekonomiczny trzeba lat. Whenever Soviet power was challenged in Eastern Europe, the response was very clear. It was tanks, it was the Red Army. That was the case in Berlin in 1953, Budapest in 1956, Prague 1968. But the answer was different in Warsaw in 1989. Solidarity won 99 out of 100 seats. The head of the Polish Communist Party called Moscow for directions. So you can go to uh, what was happening in Poland at that year. <laughs> so this is the interactive time app where you see the colors of the country correspond to the political economic system at the time as well as different flashpoints that, that happened. We're talking about 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so you can click and you get a country report about Germany, et cetera, as well as uh, there is a complete search engine in here. Type too fast. Which basically calls up every instance of hyperinflation in the glossary, essays, debates, country reports, interviews, and the storyline program, as well as other flashpoints that you saw on the app. Let's go back to here. Um, interesting thing about this program is that the television program aired once and uh, shortly uh, again afterwards, but the audience for Commanding Heights continued to grow substantially. Um, even it's been seven years now, and it's still, uh, I think now it's in the top 30, but up until I think even last year, it was in the top 10 if you do it search for like world economy in the uh, in pick your search engine. So um, I think one of the, the interesting lear key learnings from this is sort of the value of sort of long tail distribution of a program that's on the web. If you look at the cost in terms of the audience that you reach versus a television show that's a one shot versus something that's an ongoing resource on the web, uh, it's proven to be a very <coughs> effective way to do that. Another big concern when we were first doing this was take taking the entire television show and putting it out on the web, is that going to cannibalize video sales? And we found that that's actually not the true. It really helped generate and support the cost of uh, video, DVD uh, sales later. Um, after that time, uh, I also worked at Frontline on the, a program called The Age of AIDS that aired last summer. And um, 
very similar architecture, narrative, uh, spatial, temporal, contextual exploration, and I won't get into that there. I'm going to show quickly the next project we're doing called the Worldwide Telescope. And this is sort of, um, I'm really going to zip through these slides here, um, taking the idea of narrative and doing it in a very different way. Because what we're creating is we're creating this middle layer, which is sort of the virtual sky, where we're bringing together uh, data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which we helped make uh, public on something called Sky Survey in 2002, as well as data from Hubble and the Spitzer Space Telescope and others into an aggregated virtual sky. And then you can imagine episodes of like perhaps NOVA or lectures from a person at Harvard or you know, you name it, all of these uh, uh, narratives can be embedded into the virtual sky with a little bit of metadata and then underneath the objects you'll have access to source data from them as well. Uh, I'll show you a, a, a prototype that we have right now. And let me go see that. So this represents um, two and a half people's work for uh, about three months so far. This is sort of our part-time project. So you're looking at the virtual sky here. Uh, if you look over to the left, this is uh, the Milky Way. This is not an image of Milky Way. It's actually procedurally generated from uh, two mass data, which is color rendered correctly and positionally uh, correct within the sky for the world coordinate system. Um, let's find something that everybody knows. Okay, so here is, can you turn the lights down? I don't know if everybody can see this. So you're looking at the Milky Way I mean the uh, Big Dipper. Yeah, we'll get back here in a second. Okay, so here's the, the Big Dipper. And we'll go in and look at just in an area perhaps below the Big Dipper. And we'll transition from this to uh, a fuzzy patch in the center. And if I continue to go into a fuzzy patch, this is where we make the transition from ground-based observation to space-based imagery, which is from the Hubble. And what you're looking at is two galaxies that are actually colliding. And Tom mentioned before about gravitational uh, aggregation of hydrogen causing star formation. That's essentially what's going on right here. Yeah. <laughs> you look in another part of the uh, area below the Milky Way here. Uh, let me find here. You notice that there seems to be galaxies everywhere all these little fuzzy patches or galleries, galaxies. Here's an interesting one. This one um, is called, um, I think it's M81. So this particular galaxy is about uh, 100,000 light years. And in the center is a supermassive black hole, about 36 million solar masses. And you can sort of see this, uh, what looks like a very round yellow bubble, but if you look at this in x-ray or infrared, there's um, quite a bit of activity that comes outside of the center. And if you look here on the spiral arms, uh, this area here and this area down here, what's also happening there is uh, that's also an area where gravitational waves are compressing the hydrogen. Uh, and of course, and then all these objects, you can also then connect to other related information from a number of other federated services that are on the web, as well as create imagery for uh, that astronomers want to be able to use for on any particular object. So um, we hope to release this sometime this fall. 
uh, what, what the process that we're in right now is we're creating uh, a number of exemplar narratives. And um, <coughs> this is what the UI will look like when we're done. And uh, we'll have simulations embedded within objects and uh, the ability to author and create experiences within this virtual space. So this is our, our sort of scenario that a kid might you know, engage in a particular story about astronomy, go as deep as they want, go and actually explore because they're able to browse the entire sky behind any object or connections to other narratives and links to other sort of related things as well as ha have access to this, the uh, source data and the same data that astronomers have. So uh, anyway, that's it and I'm way out of time. Thank you.